Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. If you have ever been to Israel, one of the most stunning realities is how this very small nation with a landmass just a little larger than New Jersey, actually, and with a population just a little less than New Jersey, is surrounded by enemies, yet continues to protect herself and her citizens and also to thrive as a a modern nation. Whether you agree with all of Israel's policies or not, the intelligence and strength of Israel's military is undeniable and respected by enemy and foe alike. And I see some folks who traveled to Israel with us just before the pandemic started, whenever that was. And uh, it's pretty stunning to see um, uh, Israel succeeding in the environment it's in. And and again, whether you agree with everything Israel uh, uh, does or not, you can't deny that they're respected for their intelligence and military Prowess. It's like ever since the Jewish state resecured the land that was promised to Abraham some 4,000 years ago, they ferociously fought to keep it and keep it safe for its citizens. Now, what many people don't know, though, is that this courageous fighting spirit and underdog military success is deep in the Jewish DNA. There's a little-known story about Abraham found all the way back in Genesis 14, a story that's 4,000 years old. It's a story about how that a coalition of four Canaanite kings attacked the Transjordan and defeated the city-states of Sodom, some five city-states headed by five kings, and carried off a large number of hostages, including Abraham's nephew Lot, who lived in Sodom, which was one of the city-states that was defeated by this alliance of four kings. Well, someone brought Abraham, uh, then with his pre-covenant name Abram, the news that this uh, tremendous defeat had happened, that uh, hot, many hostages had been carried off, including Lot and his family, and all of Lot's uh, 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 goods, uh, lots of plunder had, had been taken. And Abraham who was at that time a, a nomad, albeit a very wealthy and successful nomad, still waiting to secure the promised land, Abraham uh, called out 318 trained men from his household. And he went after the this alliance of four kings, this very powerful alliance of four kings. And he caught up to them somewhere close to Damascus in modern-day Syria, and under the cover of night, he deployed his small force of 318 train warriors, commandos, if you please, against this alliance of four kings who had just won this great victory. And he not only defeated this alliance of kings, but he rescued all the hostages, all of them. He rescued all the goods that had been stolen, And he traveled back towards where he was living, which at that time was close to Jerusalem, or at that time it was called Salem. And in the midst of this 
post-victory success. Uh, Abram, at the very pinnacle of his power, met a strange figure um, and had a mystical encounter with the king priest of Salem or Jerusalem, a shadowy figure of immense and profound importance for Jews and Christians alike and of profound importance for our teaching today. This guy who was the king priest of Salem was a man named Melchizedek. And we're told in Genesis 14, after Abram returned from defeating the kings, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And this becomes, as you'll note in our uh, teaching through the New Testament book of Hebrews, this becomes a very important encounter in the, in the mind of the Jewish people and consequently uh, the mind of, of Christian people with our faith rooted deep in Judaism. And uh, it seems like kind of a, an odd thing 4,000 years after the fact to talk about how that 2,000 years later and 2,000 years ago, this pastor is writing a letter to Jewish Christians in the mid-AD 60s living in Rome who were so discouraged that many of them were thinking about going back to Judaism or some pre-Christian uh, way of life. And part of the argument that this pastor makes in order to encourage these Jewish Christians to keep the faith, to hang in there, to have an appreciation of what they have through Jesus Christ is a discussion of this guy named Melchizedek. In fact, there is an entire chapter in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7, that is dedicated to a discussion about this guy. And so, um, you know, when I sit around and dream about things to preach about, I, I, I never think, you know, I think I'm going to teach about Melchizedek. But as we're teaching through Hebrews, and now we're to Hebrews chapter 7, that is in fact the subject matter that, that we're going to deal with. In fact, today we're going to cover uh, all of Hebrews chapter 7 and uh, a, a portion of Hebrews chapter 8, quite a large section of Hebrews. Uh, but the focus of it, which sets up the rest of this letter to the Hebrews, is on this guy, Melchizedek. It's important. Abraham meets him flush with victory. He is blessed by him, and Abraham returns a tenth to him, which becomes a really big deal in understanding some things about Jesus Christ and our faith and our access to God and so on. All right, so let's organize today's teaching like this. Three words that speak to the superiority of Jesus, our high priest. Is everybody doing okay? You didn't fall immediately asleep when I said Melchizedek, did you? You... All right, so here's the first word. The first word is greater. And I'm going to read quite a lengthy portion of Scripture here from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. 
All right. So this pastor is writing to, the, to these Jewish Christians in, in the mid-A.D. 60s about something that happened 2,000 years ago. And now, 2,000 years later, we're reading about it, and we're going to make application to our lives today. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. We just read about that in Genesis 14. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, or king of Jerusalem, king of Shalom, means king of peace. Without father or mother, and this is why we talk about Melchizedek being this mystical figure. We don't know where he came from. Uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about him as if he's still alive. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, the law requires, the law just, you know, I, I, I know sometimes when I'm teaching things like this, I say things that are obvious to many of you, but I encourage you to remember that there are a number of our brothers and sisters who are hearing some of these teachings for the first time in their lives and have no idea where any of this is coming from. When we talk about the law, it's important to remember that the law did not come until 400 years after Abraham. Remember, Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had sons, 12 of whom became the leaders of the 12 tribe of Israel. This, this group of 12 tribes became a, quite a large people. They ended up going and, and trying to find food during a famine in Egypt and ended up being held captive in Egypt for some 400 years. And during that 400 years, they continued to grow and they grew to a group of somewhere between probably two and three million people. And then Moses became the deliverer who delivered them from Egypt and he delivered them from Egypt into the promised land where they spent 40 years. And then under the leadership of the successor of Moses, Joshua, they conquered the promised land and established themselves in what God had promised Abraham. Now we're going back some 500 or so years prior to them actually securing the land that had been promised, okay? So it's important to note that the relationship that Abraham had with God was a relationship that was based on faith. Abraham, we're told in Genesis 15, believed God and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. The law, which, which formed this people into a nation and into a church, the Old Testament church or created Judaism, we would say, that didn't happen until some 400 years after Abraham. Okay, so I'll pick it back up here in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 5. Now the law requires the descendants. So, so what's the point he's making? He's making the point now that even as great as Abraham is, Melchizedek was greater because Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek and Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. 
Then he says, some 400 years later, the law requires the descendants of Levi who became priest to collect a tenth from the people. Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons. One of them is Levi. And the Levites became the priestly tribe in Judaism, okay? So Aaron, the first high priest, was a, was a Levite. Moses was, in fact, a Levite. Moses and Aaron were brothers. And then the, the entire tribe of the Levites, the, the sons of Levi, were the priesthood who served in the tabernacle of Moses, which then in time became the temple of Solomon, and so on. Okay, So he's saying the priestly class, they now were required to collect tithes from their fellow Israelites, even though they are descended from Abraham. This man, however, we're back on Melchizedek. This man, however, did not... By the way, next trimester, we're going to talk about how to live a happy life or something. We're not going to dig through a book like, like Hebrews again. I just want you to know that, okay? Did not trace his descent from Levi. In other words, Melchizedek didn't trace his descent from uh, Levi because Melchizedek showed up 400 or so years before Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without a doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, the Levites, the tithe, the King James would say the tithe. Why, why, why? The, the words tithe and tenth are interchangeable. Why? Tithe means tenth. That's, that's what tithe means. It means tenth. It means a tenth of one's income in this context. And without a doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth or tithe is collected by people who die, the Levites, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living, Melchizedek, who collected the tithe from Abraham. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. It's pretty complicated, but in other words, he's making the, the point that's being made. Is it Melchizedek, who is a type of Christ? Some say perhaps even the pre-incarnate Christ, meaning, meaning Jesus showing up in, in the person of Melchizedek prior to the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. Though I don't think that's probably so, but there are some theologians who believe that, and some think that that Melchizedek perhaps was an angel representing God. Uh, we all we don't know. All we know, he was a type of Christ, which is the point that's being made here. And he was a type of Christ, and we know how great he was because even Abraham, the patriarch, was blessed by him and paid tithes to him. And and someone might come along and say, well, the Levites collected tithes as well, and they did it under the law. And 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 to which the, the, the writer to the, the Hebrews who's writing to these really smart Jewish Christians who might ask a question like that said, wait a second, even Levite even Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek because Levi was in Abraham's loins. It's 400 years before he's going to be born 
It's a pretty interesting point, clever point that he makes. So even Levi, who collected tithes under the law, paid tithes to Abraham through faith because he was in the loins of Abraham. Are you confused yet or is there clarity? The most important thing, the most important point here is that Melchizedek is a type of Christ and that the writer to these Jewish Christians is making the point that the priesthood of Jesus, the high priesthood of Jesus is is superior to the high priesthood of Aaron, the high priest who was a descendant of Levi, because Jesus, the writer is saying, is a priest who actually tore down the veil that separates humanity from God and gives us access to God in a way that these these normal priests, the Levites, great as they were, couldn't do. And he's saying, hey, listen, if you're thinking about leaving Jesus because you're discouraged and going back to Aaron, as great as Aaron was, he isn't as great as Jesus because Jesus is a high priest, not after the order of Aaron, just priests who die, the Levites, just normal people, Jesus is a high priest after Melchizedek who had no beginning and no ending and still lives today and uh, is so powerful that even our father Abraham was blessed by him and paid tithes to him. The point he's making is that Jesus is greater than anything that had ever been known before and the only way you could possibly try to describe it from Jewish history is to say he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And in so doing, he refers to to a song. There are only three times in all of scripture Melchizedek's mentioned. Genesis, for which you can be grateful because I probably won't come back to the text for a long, long time. Genesis 14, Hebrews 5, 6, 7, and then Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm. The me- messianic psalms are psalms that are prophesying about the coming of the Jewish Messiah. And there's this powerful psalm that gets a lot of play in scripture, though not necessarily about Melchizedek, but it's the 110th psalm where it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In, 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 in Christian theology, it's the father saying to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This refers to the oath we taught about last Sunday. You, you being the Messiah, Jesus, prophetically, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of of his wrath. So what the writer of the Hebrews is saying, hey guys, hey fellow Jews who now believe in Jesus the Messiah, I want you to get a sense of who Jesus is. And who Jesus is, is he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he's a high priest who will defeat his enemies. He's a high priest who's not just a priest, he's also a king. He has such power, in fact, that he's going to destroy everything that keeps you away from the presence of God and all that God has in your life. So know this, Jesus, he says, is greater than anything you could possibly want to return to. Now, to nail the point that Melchizedek was greater than Aaron, and I didn't plan on teaching on this, but this is the text. Obviously, I just read it. 
This writer to the Hebrews talks about the special place of tithing and blessing. Let me refer to this for a moment. Again, I, this, isn't, this isn't me causing the text to say what I wanted to say. This is what the text emphasizes. Um, the commentator George Guthrie wrote, the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood rests on what he received from Abraham, namely a tenth of the patriarch's plunder, one in battle when he retrieved Lot and the other captives from Sodom. In proclaiming the preeminence of this priesthood by virtue of Abraham's tithe, he also notes the blessing Melchizedek gave to Abraham. Uh, R. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Hebrews says much the same thing. He writes, Melchizedek's superiority is presented through two occurrences in his meeting with Abraham, tithing and blessing. In other words, the writer to the Hebrews says the reason we know that Melchizedek was so great is because even Abraham, in all of his power, humbled himself to receive a blessing from this guy and he tithed to this guy, this type of Christ. The fact that he tithed tells us what Abraham thought of Melchizedek. This cannot be understated, guys. I'm going to say that again. The fact that Abraham tithed tells us what Abraham thought about Melchizedek. Because tithing was done only to deity. And so when someone tithed, they were making a statement about what they believed what they worshipped, what they were submitted to. And I see a, a beautiful, in fact, this, this passage in Genesis 14 from 4,000 years ago is the first time that tithing is mentioned in all of Scripture. There's a, there's, a, there's a principle in theology, guys, called the law of first mention. That is to say that the first time you see a thing mentioned in Scripture that's repeated frequently in Scripture, you place special emphasis on the first time it's mentioned because it's teaching us something about God's intention. And, 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 and this is why every once in a while I will come back to Melchizedek when I talk about tithing because we learn something very important. The, the, the reality is, is that Abraham used his tithe to worship. He's blessed by Melchizedek, but then he turns around and he worships Melchizedek. How do we know that he worshiped? He worshiped through his tithe. The tithe was a statement of faith. It was a confession of what he understood about Melchizedek. Do you, do you, do you understand that point? This type of Christ. I, I, I see a beautiful pattern happening here. Several things happen in Genesis 14. Abraham wins his victory. He's coming back from the victory. He meets Melchizedek. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine, which symbolizes a covenant meal. They make covenant together. Bread and wine was always the covenant meal. We are flesh of flesh. We are blood of blood. Then Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Then, then Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. There is this constant, constant circle when you read about covenant and when you read about blessing and you read about tithing it's like you're blessed you tithe you're blessed more you tithe you find this pattern all the way through scripture when this subject is talked about there are some who will say that tithing only happened, that tithing was something that happened as a result of the law. In other words, Moses commanded that 
people tithe. It wasn't a choice. It was commanded that people tithe. And the Levites, under Moses, collected the tithe. And that's true that Moses did command the tithe and that the Levites did uh, collect the tithe. But tithing predates law by 400 years. It Tithing began under faith. Tithing began as an act of worship. Levite was in Abraham, the, the law guy was in Abraham's loins tithing and worshiping this type of Christ, which is to say that there are a lot of things that we, we could, we sh- could say about tithing, including it's something that we, you should do and it's smart to do and you're blessed when you do and so on and so forth, which we can make that case from all kinds of scriptures. We can talk about how Jesus said in Matthew 23, 23, that you should tithe. He stated it as a moral imperative in the Greek language. He, it was a, it, Jesus said, you should tithe. But really, tithing at its core is about people who understand how blessed they are by Jesus and who decide to respond to the blessing by saying, here is a tenth of everything I have. You know, here, here Abraham is coming from this great victory, leading this train of hostages he's rescued. And, and, and he's so celebrated. And the, and, and, and what does he do? He, he, as he, when he's blessed, he humbles himself and he says, you know, here's a tenth of everything I have. And, and, and that should be our attitude. I just got a new job. Here's my tithe. I just got my bonus. Here's my tithe. I've been blessed. Here's my tithe. I need a blessing. Here's my tithe. It should, it just should be a normal response of people who are living in faith to understand understand there's something of tremendous magnitude that goes on. I don't know why God said it and did it this way, guys, but this is what scripture teaches. There's something of tremendous magnitude that goes on when a person is a tither. They're acknowledging how blessed they are and they're acknowledging, they're saying what they think about Jesus. It is an act of faith and worship. All right. I could go on about that for another hour, but you'll be happy to know that I won't. Here's the second word in the second section of this passage. It's perfect. Perfect. And now let's pick up the text in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. I know, Anthony, I just flashed through a bunch of scriptures I didn't read, but I went too long on my peroration about all of that. All right, perfect. Hebrews 7, verse 11. If perfection could have been attained, he's picking up his thought, talking about Melchizedek, he's talking about Jesus being the high priest. And this first point is, we know because of how Abraham treated Melchizedek and that Melchizedek was a type of Christ, that Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Now he starts focusing on the idea of perfect. Now he's going to say he's the, he is the perfect high priest, okay? If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. In other words, why do we need Jesus, the priest? Again, you have to remember, he's talking to these Jewish Christians very rooted in Judaism. They were very connected, understandably, to their religion that included the importance of the Levitical priesthood. So he's making the point, hey, that's awesome, but Jesus is greater. Why do we need Jesus? 
For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Again, it's an obscure argument for most of us today, but Jesus was descended from uh, so it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons. One of the sons was Levi. The priesthood came from there. Another of the sons was Judah. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. Judah was the kingly tribe. And that's pretty obvious, pretty clear. You've heard all the scriptures and the songs at Christmas time, right? He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's the, he's the, king of lion of judah he's the son of david king who came from judah so so we we get it's easy to make the case that jesus comes that he's king but but the but he that this guy this writer to the hebrews is trying to make the point that he's not just king he's also priest because over the next few chapters he's going to talk about how jesus tore down the veil that kept people from god and everything god wanted for them so he says i know he didn't come from judah but that's okay because his priesthood is is bigger than that he came from melchizedek and what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest. Now he's talking about Jesus. He's saying Jesus is our Melchizedek, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, being born a Levite, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. He says, we know Jesus is this priest who comes after the order of Melchizedek because he was raised from the dead. He still lives. The former uh, for it is declared, he quotes from the 110th Psalm, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. In other words, he says, what, what we know about the law, as, as though it was good, is the law ended up not accomplishing for us what we wanted for it to accomplish, which was giving us access to God and a relationship with God and helping us truly to be more holy people. It didn't work, he says, ultimately. See, the New Testament teaches the law was good, and the law accomplished a lot, but the biggest thing the law accomplished was to teach us that we couldn't keep the law. The law By the law, the Apostle Paul said, we have a knowledge of sin. You set a rule, set your own rule. Set your own rule. You, you set your own rules for whatever it is you think would make you a holy person and see if you can keep them. And I'm going to tell you that you won't be able to. It's just the way it is. Well, the law caused people to continue become aware of their failure to keep the law. And so this lets us know that ultimately we need something more than the law. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. <clears throat> and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. Now he's referring to the oath that, that God made in the Messianic Psalm, the 110th uh, Psalm, where God made an oath that, that Jesus is a, is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn uh, and ha will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. There have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, and this is beautiful, guys, he is able to save completely. This makes all this technical argument that those Jewish Christians would have understood to say, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede 
intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He says the Levitical priest, they, 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 were, they, were, they were good men f- fulfilling their calling, but they were just men. And they, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sin before they could even offer sacrifices for the sins of the people in order for the, the priest to even represent the people before God. He says Jesus didn't need to, need to do that. Uh, uh, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. On the cross, he made the last sacrifice that ever needs to be made in human history for the sins of humanity. He did it once. You guys are working hard to encourage me out there. Thank you. For the law appoints as high priest men in all their weaknesses. But the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. So this guy says, he says, Jesus is greater. And you know what? He is perfect. He is exactly what we need. To have the relationship with God that we so desperately want. He is able, one translation says, to save to the uttermost. When I was a kid, my pastor always used to talk about he saves from the guttermost to the uttermost. And in fact, that's what happened. And so the idea of perfection here in this particular text, as opposed to the way the perfection is talked about in, in a lot of other places in the New Testament, the idea of perfection here has to do with arriving at a desired end or reaching a goal. The desired end the writer is talking about is access to God. And he's saying because the Levitical priests were imperfect, just men, they could not lead people to the desired end, which was access to God. The writer to the Hebrews is assuming that the reason that these people are following Jesus is because they want to have a relationship with God. They want his spirit to live in them. They're hungry for God, and he's saying, listen, guys, if that's what you're looking for, Jesus is the perfect one who gets you there. So it's not, it's not like these other priests who are just men, which is Dostoevsky. Now you're going to get excited as I refer to the Brothers Karamazov, one of my favorite books. Dostoevsky does this amazing uh, little thing. I, I don't have time to do it, but I'm going to do it anyway. We're going to cancel baptisms because I I want to do this little thing from Dostoevsky. Where he talks about this priest, the elder, who dies. And there are a bunch of people who thought, boy, this is a, I need to do a whole sermon on this someday without mentioning Melchizedek. Uh, he talks about this priest, the elder who died, and this priest was a, was a holy man. And there were a lot of people who thought that when they, when they, uh, that, that, that his body would not decay. Because he was so holy, he, he wouldn't, his body wouldn't decay like everybody else's. And so when they laid out his body in the chapel, 
uh, uh, people were surprised when, as the day went on on a very hot day prior to people being embalmed, that they started to notice, Dostoevsky calls it an odor of corruption. While still before dawn, it's, this is funny, I think, when still before dawn, the body of the elder prepared for burial was placed in the coffin and carried out to the front room, the former reception room, a question arose among those attending the coffin. Should they open the windows in the room? But this question uttered cursorily and casually by someone went unanswered and almost unnoticed unless it was noticed and even then privately by some of those present only in the sense that to expect corruption and the odor of corruption from the body of such a deceased was a perfect absurdity even deserving of pity if not laughter with regard to the thoughtlessness and little faith of those who had uttered the question then shortly afternoon something began that was first noticed by those coming in and going out only silently and within themselves and even with an apparent fear of communicating the thought that was beginning to form in them but which by three o'clock in the afternoon and manifested itself so clearly and undeniably that news of it spread instantly all over the hermitage and among all the pilgrims and through all the monks and the consternation and finally in a short time reached town. The thing was that little by little but more and more noticeably an odor of corruption had begun to issue from the coffin. Some out of our sensible monks were amazed and horrified at how this temptation could then have reached such proportions. For before then that people would actually think that the body of this priest would not suffer decay. Uh, For before then it had also happened that monks of very righteous life whose righteousness was in all men's eyes, God-fearing elders had died, and even so from their humble coffins too, there had come an odor of corruption appearing quite naturally as in all dead men. What's the point? The point is he was a good priest. He was a holy man. He was a wonderful pastor. He had a tenure that lasted 30 or more years. He was a great guy, but he was just a man, right? And, 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 and when he died, his body decayed, just like every other human being who has ever lived, except one. And so the writer to the Hebrews is saying, hey guys, now you can put, you know, your faith if you want in a system that's based on imperfect human beings who are sinners themselves and have to offer sacrifices for themselves. Or if you want something greater than that, we can talk about perfection. You can talk about following a high priest who's not a high priest because he was born into the right family. He's a high priest because God made an oath that he was going to have this unique priest king who would come and do for humanity what humanity could not do for themselves. This priest, he says, if you want to follow him, when he was buried, his body laid in a tomb, but his body did not suffer decay because three days after it was laid in the borrowed tomb, he was resurrected bodily and therefore he is a high priest Hebrews 7 says on the power of his indestructible life and so this this the writer to the Hebrews says make your choice what do you want door A or door B you want these normal guys who are just normal priests who are just like everybody else in desperate need of sacrifice for their own sins because they're just human beings or do you want door B door B is a priest unlike those priest. He is greater than, he is perfect, he is exactly what you need to save you from the uttermost. He can save you from anything, he says. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been, what you've experienced, the thoughts you have, the sins you've committed. It doesn't matter. He's so powerful that he can save you from anything. If you'll just let him, he'll bless you. 
If you'll just let him, he'll save you. If you'll follow him, he's going to lead you into the presence of God, a relationship with God where you're not just going to be following some legal code, some system, trying to do all the right things, but he's actually going to change you at the level of your heart. He's going to change your heart. He's going to change your mind. So he's saying, guys, who do you, which, which, which do you want? You want Aaron or you want Melchizedek? You want Levites or you want Jesus? You want just nor and this is why, by the way, guys, one of the things that's really important for all of us to remember is today's priest, today's priest, and if you want to call me a priest, I'm, it's not technically correct, but nonetheless, I'd understand what you say. Just, you, you, we keep being reminded that we're just normal people, just human beings who have a call from God trying to do the right thing, trying to follow Jesus. But we have our own issues, our own stuff, our own temptations, our own failures, right? We, we, no, you, you're not obviously here following me. Everything that I'm doing is trying to point to someone who is so much greater, someone who I know in my terrible imperfection is perfect and can do for us what no human being has ever been able to do for anyone anywhere he can save you to the uttermost and I'll close with just a quick reading from Hebrews 8 as next week by God's grace we'll pick up at Hebrews 9 and this is where he starts to starts to nail this thing if I can find it where did Hebrews 8 go now the main point so the third word would be better Hebrews 8. Now the main point of what we were saying is this. We, did, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. The ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator. He's talking about the Levites again. The covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. He says, well, what this greater one who was perfect brought us is something better than what we had before. For there have been nothing wrong with that first covenant. No place would have been sought for another. And then he offers the longest quote, actually, of an Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament here from Jeremiah. I'll just read part of it. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. The bottom line, because Jesus is greater, and because Jesus is the perfect one, he made a better covenant, and in this better covenant, he's going to do something the old covenant could never do. He's actually going to change your mind and your heart. One of the reasons a law failed is because human beings, by human effort, were trying to do the right things to earn access to God and to earn favor with God. This is not, this is not unique to Judaism. This is true, you know, some of us who were raised in more fundamentalistic Christian 
groups. Uh, and I think it's really the default position. This is true of a lot of Roman Catholics I know, a lot of Baptists I know, a lot of Pentecostals I know, human beings who think that relationship with God is based on our efforts to become better people and do all the right things. That's religion. That's not what Jesus offers. Jesus offers something better. Jesus offers something that he did for us so that when we believe in him, he does in us what we cannot do for ourselves. And part of this is he writes his laws on our minds and in our hearts. He actually changes us at the level of our thoughts. He changes us at the level of our very motivation. There's this great story about the guy, the doctor who did the first heart transplant. One day, impulsively, he said to his first patient, would you like to see your old heart? And the guy said, yeah. And he, this, the, the, the heart transplant doctor took him into a room in the hospital and up on a cupboard, cupboard uh, how, I don't know what, how, up on a shelf. There was a glass jar, and in the jar was this guy's old heart. And the guy took the jar and looked at his heart, the first person to ever hold his heart in his hands. And he said, this was my old heart that caused me so much trouble. And then he put the jar back on the shelf. And the reality is, is that those of us who have believed in Jesus, it's almost as if we can hold our old heart and say, that was the heart that caused me so much trouble. What has changed? Have we, are we, do we now have perfect hearts? No, but we have hearts that are better than the hearts that we had before Jesus put his very spirit in us. Because we have access to God through Jesus and because his presence lives in us by his spirit, he's changing our hearts. Now, today is Baptism Sunday, which is the highlight of this Sunday and a highlight for our church whenever we are blessed to have baptisms. And I believe that baptism is where this new heart, new covenant is sealed. That baptism is a place where forgiveness and transformation occur. Baptism is connected in scripture to forgiveness of sins. Peter said in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But even more, baptism in the New Testament is connected to transformation. When we're baptized in faith, something happens in our hearts that causes our hearts to become new hearts. Sometimes people talk about baptism as if it's just a public declaration of our faith. I want you to know that when you're baptized with faith in Jesus in your heart, that God shows up in that sacrament like he does every other sacrament when exercised in faith, and he does something in us. I want you as you're baptized today to expect that God is going to come in and do something in your heart. 